We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this chapter and the great hope of the rapture, the great hope of your soon return, we pray that our ears would be open and our hearts would be open, that we could realize that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Also, as we see this challenge to walk in sexual integrity and purity, we pray that our hearts would be open, God, that that it wouldn't just be a routine message, but that we would understand your heart. And we do thank you that you love us and you've got a great plan for us. So would you please uh, meet us and fill us afresh uh, with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this message is three words, abstain, inspire, and aware, the three A's. First, a challenge to abstain from sexual immorality because that is the will of God. So we're going to find tonight in our passage that this is God's will for us to walk in sexual uh, integrity. So abstain. And then to aspire, actually to aspire to live a quiet life, a calm life, a a life that is at peace with God and others. And then the chapter ends with being aware, being aware that Christ is going to return, that the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and the great comfort and hope that we have with the rapture of the church. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Paul says this is the final section. So he's entering into the final section of this letter. If you remember, he's writing to the church of Thessalonica, a church he was only able to spend a few short weeks with, a short period of time. Persecution heated up and he had to leave, and now he's writing back to them, wanting to make sure they're doing well, but now he enters into the portion of the letter where he's exhorting them, he's challenging them, and he's saying, I want you to abound more and more. And this is the Christian life, gang, is God always wants us to continue to grow in him. There's no height of our relationship with him. There's always more to know about the Lord, more to understand, a closer walk with the Lord. And he's saying, guys, you're doing well. You're growing in the Lord, but continue to grow, continue to abound, continue to multiply. And that happens as we draw near to the Lord. He also says that you know how you ought to walk and please God. Paul had laid that foundation with the church of Thessalonica. And he says, you know what it is to be in relationship with the Lord and to walk pleasing with him. In verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Even though he's already shared this with the church of Thessalonica, he's going to remind them. He's saying, okay, you know this, but now it's time for a refresher course. It's been said that repetition is the mother of all learning. How many times do we have to hear things over and over before it sinks in to our minds and even more important with our hearts? So here it is in verse 3, for this is the will of God. Maybe one of the questions that you ask the most as a believer, as the child of God, is what is his will for my life? It's something also that maybe others ask you. They say, I really want to know what God's will is for my life. And sometimes we make it really complicated, don't we? Like, is it God's will that I wear this pair of pants or that pair of pants? You know, is it, 
Is it God's will that I buy this car or I buy that car? Or should I part my hair this way? Or should I part it that way? Or I shouldn't part it at all. I mean, what, what is God's will in all of this? And all of a sudden we, we find ourselves thinking in such a deep way about God's will. And God's will in scripture actually is very simple. And God addresses it and he declares what his will is. In Romans chapter 12, it tells us that it's God's will for us to be a living sacrifice so that our life would belong to God in response to his mercies, that we wouldn't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our, lo- of our minds so that our life is on the altar of God. So that's the first part of God's will. The second part of God's will is right here, what we're going to read tonight, to abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will. And then the third part will be next week in our study in chapter 5, that in everything we should give thanks, for this is the will of God. So there you have it. It's summed up in three sentences. Be a living sacrifice, abstain from sexual immorality, and be thankful, and then you're in the will of God. Pretty simple, isn't it? Really boils down to the priorities that God has for our lives. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Bible word, isn't it? When was the last time you used the word sanctification in common conversation? Talking with your spouse, talking with your friends, coworkers, you're like, hey, so are you sanctified? But we read it a lot in scripture, don't we? And we maybe are more familiar with justified. Justified means to be declared righteous by God. That happens by faith as we trust in the finished work of Christ. So what is sanctification? Sanctification is in its essence, means to be set apart. Set apart for a purpose. So the moment that we're justified, we're also sanctified. Where God sets us apart for his purpose to grow in his likeness. Unlike justification that happens in a moment, the moment that you believe you're completely justified by the Lord, forgiven completely, sanctification is a process. We're growing in sanctification the closer that we get to the Lord. To illustrate this, you operate sanctification every day in your home. In your apartment, in your house, you probably have some kitchen utensils. And those kitchen utensils are only used for specific purposes. They are set apart for purposes. Let's just take a fork, a pretty common kitchen utensil. But it serves as an important purpose. It gets the food into your mouth so you don't have to use your hands. You would not clean the toilet with your fork the forks that you eat with. And that's just gross, isn't it, to think about scrubbing around in the toilet bowl with the fork that you're going to then eat off of because that fork is sanctified. You're not going to go in the backyard and pick up dog poop with your fork that you eat off of. I could keep going, couldn't I, right? Because it's not for that purpose. And the moment that you get saved, your life's not your own. You're bought with a price, amen? You're sanctified. You're set apart for a purpose. And so God says, I don't want you now living your life in the mud of compromise. I don't want you to now live your life in the mud of sexual immorality. Before you knew Christ as your Savior, that's what sinners do. They they sin. But now that we know Christ, he's calling us out of the things of the world. We're sanctified. And specifically, the area that's addressed here is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Immorality. So the first word of our study, to abstain. Abstain means to resist. 
So this tells us something about sexual sin until we go home to be with the Lord, that even though it is sinful and harmful, it is going to be tempting to us. It's going to be a force that's going to want to draw us away from the Lord and those that we love and bring damage in our lives. So we have to be on the offensive and abstain from sexual immorality. If you notice in Paul's writings, in Christ's writings, throughout the New Testament, sexual sin is addressed all the time. Now, sometimes in teaching the Bible verse by verse, I feel like all I'm doing is talking about sex. But I'm reading the Bible. You know, we're going through the Bible verse by verse. And in all of these epistles of Paul, he's bringing it up and he's addressing it. Because it's important to God, and it's an issue that the culture was dealing with at the time. This is a quote from an ancient Roman historian. Remember, this context is the Roman Empire. And this is what he wrote. He says, we keep prostitutes for pleasure... We keep mistresses for the day. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for faithful guardianship of our homes. So this gives you a little bit of an idea of the view of sex at this time. I think it's very applicable for our culture as well. We're, we're, we're live in a time and live in a day where sexual sin has run rampant. We have to define what is sexual immorality. You know, there may have been a time where you didn't have to define that. But because things are so twisted and so perverted, we have to establish what is sexual immorality. So sexual immorality is any sexual expression outside of marriage. So God created sex, and it's a good thing from God's perspective inside of the commitment of marriage. God's not trying to rob you of all of your fun. He's trying to give you abundant life. Amen? So he comes up with this plan that's going to lead to the fullest of life. And he says, sex is between a man and a woman inside of the commitment of marriage. And in that, it's honorable. In that, God gives his blessing. And I think that needs to be said about sexuality. You know, we hear the abstain perspective, but we need to understand God's design. Why did, why did he create it? What happens in intimacy? Two souls are being bound together as one. That's biblical. Adam, he, he leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, and becomes one flesh. That's the one flesh experience that takes place in, in marriage. So anything outside of that would be sexual sin, would be immorality. So husbands and wives, if you're cheating on your spouse, that's sexual immorality. Singles, if you're in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, that's sexual immorality. The definition of sexual immorality goes far beyond intercourse. It has to do with the heart and your attitude towards God and to those around you. So pornography would be sexual immorality. You know, if you're you're married and you're looking at pornography, you're lusting after someone who's not your spouse, and that's sexual immorality. If you're single and you're, you're looking at pornography and you're saying, well, this doesn't hurt anybody. I'm not, I'm not harming anyone from God's perspective. That's sexual immorality. It's going to lead to destruction in your life. It may be something that is in your heart and, and your mind is consumed with these lustful thoughts. That's sexual immorality. So, so God's heart is not that we would get as close to sexual immorality as possible but his heart would be that we would get as close to him as possible. 
And we would get as close to sexual integrity and sexual purity as possible. And if God says this is his will, this is his will for our lives, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, then it's a possibility. It's a possibility that we could walk in this way. And so verse 4 gets more specific, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Your body is a vessel, meaning that it's a container filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You read in the Old Testament the detail, the design, God's glory, the emphasis that was placed on the temple. God's presence dwelt in the temple. Now in the New Covenant, God's presence dwells in believers. He's chosen to put his very presence inside of believers. Christ lives inside of you. So God says, you need to know how to possess your vessel. You need to know how to walk in integrity in this way. So possessing the vessel in sanctification and honor. So this then provokes a good question. How do I possess my vessel for honor? How do I walk in God's will in this area? And there's a few things that come to mind. You may want to write them down, pray them through. Is first, we've got to believe that it's a possibility. We've got to believe that it's a possibility that we could walk in honorable way when it comes to sexual integrity. And that may be hard because you go, all I've ever experienced is defeat in this area of my life. I can't imagine a life of a year without pornography. I, I, you might be single and saying, I can't imagine not having sex in, until I'm married. I've compromised in such a, such a great way. This is a part of my, my lifestyle. Maybe sometimes wholeheartedly you, you've said, I want to change in this area only to experience defeat again. Some of you may be tuned off as soon as you heard me start to address this topic, but God says it's a possibility. So we have to believe that it's a possibility. We have to believe that there can be lust-free living, that there can be sexual integrity in our lives. And it doesn't matter what your past is because that's the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He rose again. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Second is we've got to reckon the old man dead. You might be saying, well, what in the world's my, my old man? It's our sinful nature that we still have as believers. Romans chapter 6 says to reckon the old man dead. And it's a mathematical term. You do the accounting. And you say that sinful nature is crucified. It's been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. So here comes that challenge of staying from sexual immorality. Here comes the temptation. The sinful flesh is saying, dwell on these thoughts. Begin to flirt with this person. Go ahead and engage in this sexual sin. And you cry out to that old man and say, you're dead. I'm crucified to this and I'm risen in newness of life. Spirit over flesh, I think, is really important. Number three, spirit over flesh. What do I mean by that? Before we knew Christ as our Savior, our flesh and our fleshly desires ruled our lives. Whatever our flesh wanted, that's what we went for. Whatever our sinful nature wanted, that's what we went for. But now, the Spirit of God should rule our lives. A term that we talk a lot about is be led by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. What does that really mean? It means moment to moment, 
where the Holy Spirit gets to call the shots in my life. And the Holy Spirit will be faithful to say, don't go there. Don't go there. There's no need for you to be online at one in the morning. Don't go there. You know, don't, don't take that second look. Don't, don't start flirting with that, with that person. You, you're single. You know what's going to happen if you go down to the bar and you're hanging out till two in the morning. The Holy Spirit's going to be faithful to say, don't go down there. You know, don't, don't do that. Walk, walk in the Spirit. And in fact, the Holy Spirit will then give us a path that's far better. Why don't you get out your Bible and read it? You know, why don't you worship? Why don't you find someone to go serve? Why don't you enter into prayer? Go, okay, yeah, that, that's, that's much better. <laughs> I want to go down, I want to go down that path. But that is a spiritual discipline to begin to invite the Spirit into our lives in that way and to walk in the Spirit. And Zechariah 4, 6 says, it's not by power nor by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So to say, Lord, I know I can't have victory in this apart from your spirit, but I'm choosing to walk in the spirit. And this is effective in the area of lust, but it's effective in every area. The battle might be bitterness. The battle might be anger or covetousness or fear. I'm going to walk in the spirit. I'm going to let the spirit rule over the flesh. Number four, really important in this area, I believe, is to take thoughts captive. Take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because thoughts become actions. Actions become our character. Our character defines our life. I personally don't believe somebody just hops into bed with somebody who's not their spouse overnight. That has begun with a lifestyle of thoughts for a long period of time. It's lustful thoughts not brought into captivity. And eventually the Bible tells us that sin is conceived. It's that moment where we cross the line, where it goes from thoughts to reality, and it will happen. And we're deceived if we think, well, I can just keep it in the thought category. You know, and it may be as, well, I wish that my spouse was like this. Or I wish that they were like that. Or if I was only married to this person, and you start to create this altered reality of, of what that person is. And I think that's where the enemy really gets the best of us. I was reading a Time Magazine article today, and it was just a, a short little thing that they had in there. But over in Europe and in England, that the average female mannequin is 6'1", which is taller than the average English man, the average man, man in England. So she's six feet one, and her waist is 23 inches. And which is the average waist of a 10-year-old girl. So here she is taller than the average man, but her waist is skinnier than a 10-year-old girl. And here, that's being portrayed as the issue of beauty. That's not reality, you know? That's not the way that, that God is designed. And whether it's in the physical, or it's in the emotional, or it's in the relational, it's easy to start to have your mind go outside of your marriage, and you have to take your thoughts captive. And this, this will preach right here. You can share this next line with whoever you want. Is the grass is not greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it. Isn't that true? That's, that's the way it is in my, at my yard, you know? It takes water in order for, for the grass to grow. So it's not looking outside of your marriage, but in start investing 
in, in your marriage. You're single. Take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. How does that work out practically? In those moments of temptation, memorize scripture and quote scripture out loud. And that's how Jesus, as he was addressing temptation, we're crying out to Jesus and we're quoting scripture out loud, but we take our thought, thoughts captive. Now, is this a big deal to God? Yes. He said, this is the will of God. Abstain for sexual immorality. Learn how to possess your vessel for honor. So part of this is learning how to take, take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Number five is plan ahead. Don't place yourself in compromise. Plan ahead. Don't place yourself in compromise. It's a book I read over 10 years ago. It's called Hedges by, I forget the author, but it was a good author. And the whole concept of this book Hedges was in this area of sexual integrity and how homes used to have hedges built around them to provide a, a protection similar to how we would build fences. The concept was to think ahead of areas of temptation and build hedges about, about your life. You know, to where the author was saying there were a few times that he would, in his line of work, have to have a meeting with a, a gal who uh, wasn't his wife. And he was so set on these hedges that he would have a picture of his family and he would just set it on the table during the meeting. He didn't want to have many misunderstandings of how important it was for this female to know how valued his wife and kids were in his life. So this, this, this is rocket science. If I've kind of lost you a little bit tonight and it's like, wah, 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 wah. Okay, this is going to blow your mind. If you're not alone with someone who's the opposite sex other than your wife, you won't have sex with them. Okay? Because in order for you to have sex with them, you have to be alone. So there's a hedge that you put in place in your life. If you're married, you say, the only woman that I'm alone with, men, is my wife. There's no need for me to be alone with any other woman because I'm setting up a hedge. I'm preparing ahead of time to know that this is going to be an area of temptation. If you're single, you can say, you know, if this is an area of temptation in your life and you're, you're dating someone, say, you know, we don't need to be spending all this time alone in our apartment, all this time alone in our house. There's a lot of great coffee shops that stay up till, to stay open till late at night. Go, go drink coffee at Barnes and Noble, all right? Go check out the Bible section, you know, it, like get to that place and you say, well, I'm 45 years old. You know, I'm single and I'm 45 years old. I don't, I don't need, you know, a chaperone. I'm not, I'm not 17 years old. I'm not saying that you do. I'm just saying when you're alone with someone with the opposite sex, sometimes it leads to sex. Okay. And so you go ahead of yourself and you begin to put hedges up. I think a very practical hedge in this area is guard your heart and who you're sharing with of the opposite sex. Because again, I don't believe people just jump into bed overnight. It starts somewhere. And where does it start? It starts with conversation, where we're talking and sharing issues of the heart, and you're climbing up the emotional ladder, and that's meant to happen inside a marriage. So you're sharing your heart with your spouse, you're sharing your heart with your spouse, you're climbing up that emotional ladder that then leads to physical touch, that then leads to intimacy. So... If you're married and you're sharing your heart with somebody 
of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. And before you know it, you might find yourself sharing your heart more with them than you do with your spouse, right? And they tend to maybe compliment you and give you some attention that your spouse doesn't. And that feels good. And so you start to share more and more. And before you know it, you've put yourself in a a tempting situation. As a single person, it may be appropriate as you're dating to share your heart at appropriate levels, but be very careful as you're doing it and know exactly what you're doing. The more that you share your heart, the more that you spend time alone, the more that it's going to lead to intimacy. So make sure to have accountability. So it may apply in different situations differently, but to take the time to plan ahead and don't place yourself in compromise. And then the sixth, I think, is very sneaky. It's the back door in, in this issue in so many er- in areas of sin is guard against pride. Guard against pride. In Proverbs 6 verse 26, there's a very telling verse. It's talking about the woman of folly and talking about men that had went and visited her in sexual sin. And it says, all who were slain by her were strong men. All who were slain by her were strong men. King David fell in sexual sin, didn't he? And he was a strong man. He was a strong man of God, and he was a strong warrior. Paul also writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Most of the time when people fall in sexual sin, they feel like I'm above that particular struggle. I would never do that. And there's also a tendency to look down in condemnation towards others. Oh my, I can't believe that they fell. I, I would never do that. What, what's wrong with them? They, they call themselves a Christian, and it's a real judgmental, condemning spirit, and that pride comes in, and then before you know it, they fell into that place of, of sexual sin. No one ever plans to be in that place of sexual sin. And a lot of times... It's strong believers. A lot of times it's people that walk with the Lord, people that have been been used by, by the Lord. We have to understand if something's the will of God that's going to lead to wholeness in our lives, how much would the enemy want to use that as a tool of, of destruction? In verse 5, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the passion for Christ drives us not the passion for lust. Not desiring to consume others, but desiring to be consumed by Christ. And it says, like the Gentiles who don't know God. Like the Gentiles who don't know the Lord. So as believers, our lives should look different than those that don't know the Lord, especially in this area of sexual integrity. People should be able to go, oh man, I wonder if they're a Christian because look at the way they're committed to their spouse. You know, I wonder if they're a Christian because look at their commitment as a single person to sexual integrity. If you're single and you want to get the attention of a lost and dying world, then live in sexual integrity. Aaron go, what in the world? Why are you doing this? Well, because Christ is my savior. Because I have a passion for Christ and he loves me and, and I love him. For those of you that are married to say, you know what? Because of Christ, we're staying committed to each other. And there is faithfulness that is inside of our marriage. I want to pause here for just a moment because 
I think there's some here tonight where you just feel completely condemned. You know, you go, man, a time in my past, I, I walked in sexual sin and it really defined me. And does God forgive me? And all of a sudden, all you're hearing through this message is condemnation because of past failure. And Christ does forgive. And I'm sure that there's many of you that you've settled this issue with the Lord. You turn to the Lord, you repented, you received forgiveness, and now you have a track record of walking in sexual integrity. Don't let the enemy beat you up. Remember where he's brought you from and continue walking in that freedom. Some of you tonight are right in the midst of sexual sin. Right? Right in the middle of it. And all you're feeling is condemned and no way out. And you know the facts. You know the truth. And the Spirit of God saying, look, the Lord forgives you. And the Lord has the power to be able to transform and change. But this is not what God desires, is to say, you know what? I'm just going to stay in this place. Or, you know, God was wrong on this issue. Somehow, God's got this mixed up. I, I don't know why so much when it comes to sexuality we question the Lord. But, but we really do, don't we? We go, well, well, how could a loving God command us to live this way? Or we really love each other, so why can't we just live together? Well, because God set up the institution of marriage. He wants you to make a commitment before God and before others and before society. And that's what he calls marriage. I grew up in Oregon and a lot of people define marriage by going out to a big redwood tree and saying, I love you. And then they thought they were married to each other. And that's not biblical marriage. If you can walk into a commitment that's only holding you together is you and a tree, you need more than just you and a tree to hold you together. It might seem like it's going to be enough in the midst of that moment, but it's not. And so you want it as difficult as possible to walk away from a relationship, and that's called the commitment of marriage. And to say, look, I'm, I'm committing before God, making a covenant before God and before you that I'm married to you. I want this to be recognized before God and society. So there's forgiveness, but there's also this challenge from the Lord to say, don't, don't stay there. You know, don't, don't mix, mix up the message. God's really clear in this area. And he expresses it as we continue on in verse 6, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. There are several things in this verse. First is that sexual sin is taking advantage of someone and defrauding a brother and sister in Christ or a future brother or sister in Christ. So as the Lord has designed things, if we get outside of what he's instructed, we're actually hurting them. We're actually destroying them. We're actually defrauding them. We're taking something from them. We're taking their soul that doesn't belong to us. So we have to reorient our view to say, okay, what's the truth about this matter of sexuality? If the world's message on sexuality is working, then why do we see all the craziness and damage? You know, why do we see young people going around and sleeping with each other and having sex and then going out and killing themselves? Because they gave away their soul to 15 people. They gave away their soul to 25 people and they're completely broken inside and they don't know Christ as their Savior and they're saying, I had no idea it would hurt this bad. You really talk to somebody that's outside of God's design for sexuality and it, they're hurting. And unless they turn to Christ, 
There's a deep level of, of brokenness there that can only be healed by the Lord and, and touched by the Lord. So God's view is right, amen? God got it right. And he says, if you do this outside of marriage, you're defrauding somebody. You're, you're taking advantage of them. And it's important, it's a brother or sister in Christ if they're a believer. If they're not a believer, then it's a potential future brother or sister in Christ. So if you know Christ as your Savior, and you're sleeping around with someone who's not your spouse, and they not know Christ as their Savior, what, what view of Christ are you giving to them, right? What are, we, what are we really saying about Christ? And a lot of times it starts with missionary dating. Like, you know, I'm going to start dating this unbeliever because I'm going to lead them to Christ. And then that kind of leads to missionary sleeping around, right? I don't know how I ended up in this place, but now we're sleeping together. And, but what does that really communicate to them about the love of Christ. Here I am defrauding them, and, and they could be a, a future believer, or they could currently be a believer. And the sobering part of this in, in verse 6 is it says, the Lord is the avenger of such. And we also forewarned you by this. So there's an accountability to the Lord. I've got three daughters, and I'm pretty sure if anybody messed with my daughters, we'd be taking a trip to Mexico. We could, we could call it a missions trip. <laughs> and homeboy's not coming back, right? There, there's an aspect where you don't want to mess with someone's daughter, right? It's my daughter. I love her. I saw her be born and be raised and She's, she's near to my heart. As my son Wyatt grows up, I want to instill in him, you know, that's somebody's daughter. So you, you better be careful. And if her dad doesn't mess you up, I'll mess you up. Right? And how much more so God's saying, that's my daughter. That person you're lusting after or fooling around with or seeing in the wrong context, that, that's my daughter. That's my son. You're, you're messing around with my son. You're defrauding my son, and you're accountable to me. I, I will avenge in this. This is God going on the offensive in, in his justice, not, not the place that we want to be, not the position that we want to put ourselves in. In verse 7, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So this is what the Lord called us to. He called us to holiness. And holiness is wholeness. It's abundant life. And this message on sexuality leads to abundant life. Verse 8 is a real kicker. It says, Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man but God, who also has given us his Holy Spirit. It's not my words. It's not the Apostle Paul's. I'm not going to be offended if you reject what I just said. But you do have to wrestle with the fact that that it's God's word, that he's the one who said it. He's the one who's declared it. This is his message on sexuality. We go to aspire. So we've looked at abstain. Now we look at aspire. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This is what God is teaching us. This is what he's calling us to aspire to, is to love one another. In verse 10, and indeed, 
you do so toward all brethren who are in Macedonia. So they're, they're loving in their whole region. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So this challenge to aspire to loving more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. One of the things that God values is a quiet life. It's something that he sees as a good thing. So we, we need to be conversationalists. We need to engage people in conversation. But we don't necessarily need to talk all the time, right? So that there's something about being still and knowing that he is God. There's something about taking time to really listen to others. This describes a peace in our lives. It describes a, a calmness in our lives. But notice it's something that we have to aspire to. It's not necessarily something that comes naturally to have a quiet life, to have a peaceable life. Our culture is one that's all designed to have us up in a frenzy, isn't it? Even the media is designed to create fear and frenzy. And God's saying, I want you to be at a place of peace. I want you to have a quiet life. So part of that's mind your own business. Don't get involved in other people's business. Don't be nosy. And then the other is work with your own hands. There's a value to a good hard day's work. There's a value to going to bed tired. It's been said that idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? If we're just sitting around and not working, it, it gives opportunity to temptation. In verse 12, that you would walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So the Christ-rejecting world looks at a peaceable and quiet life and they go, wow, that's something that I would desire. We're walking properly towards those that don't know Christ as our Savior. And then that you would lack nothing. God uses work to provide for our daily needs. Gives us the ability to go to work. And through that, through working hard, then our basic needs are taken care of. We end tonight's Bible study with great hope. And we're like, phew! I was wondering if there'd be any. And it's aware of. So we have abstain. We have inspire, but we need to be aware. And it is the rapture of the church. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So he's describing those that have died knowing Christ. That's what asleep is referring to. And the whole purpose is that we wouldn't be ignorant of those that are dead in Christ, so that we wouldn't sorrow as those who have no hope. So this is the difference for us if we have a loved one, a close friend that's in Christ that dies, we, we do sorrow. There is an immense amount of pain. It's not that there is no sorrow, but there's hope in the midst of our sorrow. Does that make sense? And a lot of times as believers, I think sometimes because of the reality of heaven and what Christ is going to do for the dead that are there in Christ, we come up to another believer and we say, okay, that's enough being sad about your loved one who's gone. Aren't you glad that they're with Jesus? Now suck it up and quit crying and move on with your life. The, the Bible says that we have hope in our sorrow. Now that's not the interpretation of this. Because there's still the reality that you're going to go through this life without them. It's the hope in the midst of the sorrow. If you've been around unbelievers, as they've been mourning unbelievers, that's sorrow with no hope. You know, if you go to a funeral of someone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, it's completely different than going to... the a funeral of a believer. Yeah, there's sorrow, but in the midst of that sorrow 
is that tremendous hope because we know that they're with the Lord. In verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. So you believe in Christ's death, you believe in his resurrection, then he's going to cause the dead in Christ to rise as well. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is describing that moment in time where believers are caught up. We'll see that in the next few verses, also known as the rapture of the church. Christ himself is going to come down. He's going to descend into the clouds and give out a shout, a trumpet, like an archangel. He's not an archangel, but it's similar to the voice of an archangel. And when he does this, the graves are going to get all crazy. And the dead in Christ go bink, 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 bink. And they start popping up out of nowhere. Preparing for last week's message on the weekend with Jairus and Jairus' daughter, I really got jazzed about the fact of Jesus overcoming the grave. And I was going to bed one night, and I think I was just tired enough where I was laying trying to go to sleep, and all I could think about was dead people coming out of graves, you know. But not in this creepy, like, Halloween zombie acopolis way, but in this really cool way of, like, they, they come up and they're completely glorified and they're in their glorified bodies and all these generations of believers and they're just popping up and they're going home to be with the Lord. And this is describing the event that believers are, are caught up. So before we go up to be with the Lord, if this were to happen in our lifetime right now, the first thing that we would see would be the dead in Christ who would go up. So maybe there's some ancient believers that are buried underneath this concrete slab. And they're like, boom, right there. And you're like, whoa. And then the next thing you know, you're getting caught up to be with the Lord as well. I mean, it, it, it's much more far out than we've even imagined. Most of the time with the rapture, we focus on the believers going but the, that are alive, but those who are dead in Christ are going to go first. Now, does this now create a lot of questions for you? Yes. Because you're going, well, what happens when you die? Well, we know from Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the moment you die, your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. However, you don't get your glorified body till this event. It's very clear from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Are we then waiting up in heaven for our glorified bodies? I don't think so, because I think heaven, time is completely different. What do I mean? Because it's eternity. And God tells us that a thousand years is as a day unto the Lord. And that's just an analogy. It's not a mathematical equation. If it were a mathematical equation, you might be waiting a few minutes for your glorified body. But I think much more so, heaven is an eternal now. I think we can't even fully grasp how time's going to be in heaven. I think it's going to be much more of, of just all of these things happening at once. And so the dead in Christ rise first as Christ descends with a shout. And then verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord.
This word caught up in the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, is raptuso, which we get our English word rapture. Rapture means caught up. So when people tell you, well, the rapture is not in the Bible, it is in the Bible because rapture means caught up, and caught up is in, in the Scripture. So this is a very quick event as Christ descends that all who are believers are now caught up after the dead in Christ have risen. It's going to be an incredible event. Notice then the promise, and we shall always be with the Lord. And this is meant to cause us to have great comfort. So when we think about believers, we know that they're with the Lord, and we know that they're going to receive a glorified body, and we know that Christ could come at any moment. What if Jesus raptured the church before election day? That would be, woo! Praise God, you know? Whew, got out of that one, you know? <laughs> but this is the idea of the coming of the Lord. He, he wanted us to be prepared and always looking for the second coming of Christ. Now, I know this really freaks people out, and, and there's part of us that go, are we really supposed to teach about the imminent return of Christ? If people believe that, are they going to disengage from the things of this world? Not if they understand it correctly. Because believing that Christ could come at any time doesn't mean I go run up my credit cards. It doesn't mean I'm not going to vote. It doesn't mean I check out from a responsibility. It means I engage as a faithful steward because when Christ returns, I want to be found being faithful. Amen? And if I really believe that Christ could come back, then I'm engaging in my responsibility instead of disengaging. So verse 18, it says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the nature of the rapture, this event that's described as being caught up, is that it would provide comfort, that we would be comforted. I want to, in a few minutes, discuss the primary views of the timing of the rapture of the church. There's four views that I know of. There's probably more than this, but there's the pre-trib, which means before the tribulation, before the seven-year tribulation in the book of Revelations. Then there's mid-trib, that Jesus comes middle of the tribulation, three and a half years into the tribulation. Then there's the post-trib, that the rapture of the church happens after the tribulation. And then the other view is pan-tribulation, and it's the however-it-pans-out theology. It's like, well, I don't really know, so it's just however, however it pans out. Now, a lot of believers that love the Lord see this in different ways, and it's not something that we should break fellowship over. And I want you to really hear that, because some people get so wrapped up into this issue that they talk to somebody else that has a differing view, and they're like, all of a sudden they lose sight of that this is even going to happen. And then they lose sight of the fact that they're going to forever be with the Lord together. You're not going to be arguing over your eschatology in heaven, okay? So... What's my view? I personally do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture view, and there's several reasons why, but I'll give a few tonight, and you can pray through and decide for yourself. First, the nature of the rapture is to be a comfort. We see this in what we just read. Is it a comfort to you that you could be caught up in the middle of the tribulation? Does that bring you a lot of comfort as you read of the tribulation? Is it a comfort to you to know that you're going to live through the entire tribulation and then be raptured. Does that fit with verse 18? Therefore, comfort one another with these words as you go through the tribulation. So the very nature of it is to provide comfort. 
The second, and I think this is the most important in my mind, is Jesus taught of his imminent return. If you think about Christ's teachings on his return, he said, you be ready. You don't know when it's going to happen. And when I look at the differing views, the only one that teaches it that Christ could come back in any moment is a pre-tribulation rapture view. Because if you take a mid-tribulation rapture view, you can say with confidence we're not in the tribulation. If, if you read the book of Revelation, we are not yet in, in the tribulation. So I'm looking for the tribulation instead of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It can't be imminent. I'm looking for the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. So if I really believe that Christ could come back at any moment, like, like he said, then it would point to a pre-tribulation rapture view. And then the third reason that stands out to me is that God hasn't appointed us to wrath. The tribulation is actually described by God as the wrath of the Lamb. That's how it's described in the book of Revelation. And the wrath of the Lamb is a Christ-rejecting world. So those that don't know Christ as our Savior. And then in verse 9 of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians verse 5, and it's in context of this caught-up experience, it says, For we are not appointed, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's not appointed us to wrath. Christ took the wrath for us. But you know what? It is future, isn't it? And so I think there's wisdom in holding these future events with with humility and not losing sight of the bigger issue here in chapter 4, and that is love one another, keep getting better at loving one another, and take great excitement that Jesus has conquered the grave. The dead in Christ are going to, to rise first, and we're going to rise with the Lord as well. So a whole lot here for us in chapter 4 tonight, huh? So let's stand and let's pray and pray it in. Jesus, we, we thank you for your message on sexual integrity. And Lord, we know our hearts and we know our flesh and we know our own shortcomings. Lord, and we, we need your help. But Father, we choose to walk in your ways and walk in your word. We pray that sexual integrity could become something that is very practical. The Holy Spirit, we would live out in our lives. We want to aspire to a quiet life. I'm sure all of us are spun up in different areas over different things. And that we could mind our own business, be about the work that you've given us to do, and live in a place of peace and have that quiet life. Would you just explode the hope and the anticipation of the rapture of the church, this moment when those who are in Christ and alive are caught up and the graves open and, oh, well, what a blessing. So may we look forward to that. May Jesus, may we really live in anticipation that you could come back for your church. God, would you encourage your people tonight in communion? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.